material reflecting the views of the United States government. This is VOA News. I'm Richard Green. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to decide whether former President Donald Trump can be prosecuted on charges he interfered with the 2020 election. The court will hear arguments in April, with a decision likely no later than the end of June. The justice's order Wednesday maintains a hold on preparations for a trial focused on Trump's efforts to overturn his election laws. The timetable is much faster than usual, but assuming the justices deny Trump's immunity bid, it is not clear whether a trial can be scheduled and concluded prior to the November election. Trump's lawyers have sought to put off a trial until after the election. The funeral of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who died earlier this month, will take place on Friday. That's according to his spokesperson, AP correspondent Karen Chamas reports. The service will take place at a church in Moscow's southeast district after several locations declined to host the service. The burial is to be at a nearby cemetery. His spokesperson, Kira Yarmish, said many venues refused to take the booking when they heard the name Navalny, with one place disclosing that funeral venues were forbidden to take the service on. Navalny died in mid-February in one of Russia's harshest penal facilities. Many Western leaders have already said they hold Russian President Vladimir Putin responsible for his death. I'm Karen Chamas. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky met on Wednesday with Serbia's president, as well as the leaders of Bosnia and Moldova in Albania. Zelensky arrived overnight to join the summit of 11 countries from southeastern Europe, along with officials from the European Union and other international organizations. It was the latest stop in an international tour that saw him in Saudi Arabia on Tuesday to push for a peace plan and the return of prisoners of war from Russia. VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine podcast goes beyond the headlines to look at the most recent developments from the front lines of the Russia-Ukraine war, as well as human stories from those affected. This is VOA News. Hamas on Wednesday called for Palestinians to march to Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque at the start of Ramadan, raising the stakes in ongoing negotiations for a truce in Gaza. The call by Hamas's leader followed comments by U.S. President Joe Biden that an agreement could be reached between Israel and Hamas as soon as next week for a ceasefire during the Muslim fasting month expected to start this year on March 10th. Israel and Hamas, which both have delegations in Qatar this week, are hammering out details of a potential 40-day truce. They have said there is still a big gulf between them, and the Qatari mediators say there is no breakthrough as of yet. The International Rescue Committee says delivering critical humanitarian supplies to Sudan through the Red Sea has become too dangerous due to attacks by U.S.-designated terrorist Houthi rebels based in Yemen. Mohammed Youssef has the story from Nairobi. Getting humanitarian supplies to millions of Sudanese affected by the country's more than 10 months of conflict is getting expensive and risky due to the Yemen's rebel group's violent activities in the Red Sea. The International Rescue Committee says its logistic partner will now bypass the Red Sea route and deliver supplies through Jebel Ali port in the United Arab Emirates on the eastern side of the Arabian Peninsula. It says the new route will raise transportation costs by more than 40%. Mohamed Yusuf, VOA News, Nairobi. Meanwhile, the United States is pushing for the United Nations Security Council to take action to help end a nearly year-long conflict in Sudan between the Sudanese army and the paramilitary rapid support force. The UN says that nearly 25 people, half of Sudan's population, need aid and some 8 million have fled their homes and hunger is rising. 
A British biotechnology company is betting on a solution to Brazil's surging dengue cases involving the release of genetically modified mosquitoes to reduce the viral infection from spreading. Reuters correspondent Olivia Zelino explains. The modified mosquitoes carry a gene that kills female offspring before they reach maturity. Only female mosquitoes bite and transmit diseases. Susano was among the cities using the solution after declaring a state of emergency earlier this month. The city's mayor said he hopes the next measurement will show a reduction in cases by 20%, so the emergency can be lifted. According to Brazil's health ministry, 195 people died because of the disease, while hundreds of cases remain under investigation. That was Reuters correspondent Olivia Zelino. Follow us 24 hours a day, 7 days a week at voanews.com, as well as on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and X, formerly known as Twitter, and download our VOA News app. I'm Richard Green for VOA News. Good morning, Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Thursday, February 29th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. The UN begins the first stage of withdrawing its troops from the eastern DRC. The flags of the United Nations and Pakistan were lowered, symbolizing the end of the mission of the soldiers. Then the flag of the Democratic Republic of Congo was raised. Nigeria's Labour Congress suspends the second day of its two-day nationwide protest. A Guinea appeals court releases journalist Sekou Pandesa from detention. Chad announces May 6 as the date for presidential election. Ghana's parliament Wednesday passes the bill criminalizing LGBTQ practice and identity in the country. The bill is the promotion of Ghanaian family values and human rights. The values of respect for your elders, the value of what a family is, the father, the mother, and their children. And South Sudan blames Sudan war for inflation in South Sudan. Those story plus our Black History Month presentation are coming up on Daybreak Africa. The UN peacekeeping mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo, also known as MONUSCO, on Wednesday began the first stage of disengagement from the country. Reporter Zanem Netis Zaide has details. During a ceremony here in Kamanyola, South Kivu, the flags of the United Nations and Pakistan were lowered, symbolizing the end of the mission of the soldiers. Then, the flag of the Democratic Republic of Congo was raised, marking the handover to the DRC National Police. Police General Jean Bosco Galenga, Divisional Commissioner of Police, expressed his gratitude to the Pakistani contingent for their dedication and professionalism. He also promised to make effective use of the equipment Monisco leaves behind. He says he joins with the forces in command to continue to honor the memory of those who worked with dedication at the price of supreme sacrifice on Congolese soil. He says he assures the audience that the materials and equipment he receives will be used exclusively for the common good. Bintu Keita, the head of MONUSCO in the DRC, 
praised the contingent's hard work in Camagnola. She said their presence has been essential in maintaining stability in a region often faced with complex challenges. She says for 19 years, the blue helmets of Monisco's Pakistani contingent have made the supreme sacrifice of protecting civilians in coordination with the defense and security forces. She says she would like to pay tribute to their dedication and thank them for the excellent service they have rendered to the population and to the United Nations. With the withdrawal of the Pakistani contingent, the Kamanyola base enters a new era. The national police says it is committed to continuing the peacekeeping mission. Civil society member Asifue Balagizi says after the departure of Monisco, which had come to support the government, he thinks the security services will continue their mission to protect people and property. This ceremony marks a historical turning point for the Democratic Republic of Congo. Many civilians say they hope the transition will result in greater security and lasting prosperity for the Congolese people. For VOA Africa, Amzanem Netizaidi. The Parliament of Ghana on Wednesday passed a bill criminalizing same-sex relations in the country. According to the French news agency AFP, the new bill imposes a prison sentence of up to three years for anyone convicted of identifying as LGBTQ+. It also imposes a maximum five-year jail term for forming or funding LGBTQ plus groups. UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Vocal Talk said the passage of the bill is profoundly disturbing and called for the bill not to become law. The U.S. State Department says the bill would undermine Ghana's valuable public health media and civil spaces and the economy. Honorable Sam George is a member of the Opposition National Democratic Congress NDC Party in Parliament and the sponsor of the bill. He tells me that the bill promotes Ghanaian family values and human rights. The bill is the promotion of Ghanaian family values and human rights. So that's what the bill I'm sponsoring is about. Family values. What about the values of those people who are LGBTQ people? Do they have the same values? Are they Ghanaian? If they are Ghanaians, yes. Then Ghanaian law applies to them. What sort of values are you talking about? Ghanaian family values are spelled out in our constitution. Article 35, 36, 37, 38, 39 of the Ghanaian 1990 constitution spell out what our family values are. The National House of Chiefs is the custodian of our customary values, and so those are all spelled out. So for Ghanaians, we know what our customary values are. The values of respect for your elders, the value of what a family is, the father, the mother, and their children. These are family values that we are brought up with and trained in. We've got our values properly indoctrinated into us as kids, and we're going to pass those on to our children as well. What do you say, uh, Honorable, to those who say that uh, this bill now will make uh, will create a situation where LGBTQ people will be like they'll be witch-haunted? 
Well, you are talking to me from America on the Voice of America. What's the position of people who practice polygamy in the U.S.? Are you witch hunting them? Not really. So then that's, you got the answer to your question. But we do not put polygamy people in jail. That's not correct. Check your facts properly. I guess what I'm trying to say, the, the bill proposes a jail term of 10 years. Isn't that too much? What is too much and what is too little? On what basis are you determining that something is too much or too little? In Ghana, we have what we call the Sentencing Act. If something is a misdemeanor, it spells out how long it should be. If something is a first-degree felony, second-degree felony, it spells all of that out. So uh, that's what I'm asking. What do you mean by too long? So, uh, Honorable, um, do you think uh, that President Nana Akufuado might sign this bill? He holds power and trust for the Ghanaian people. As parliamentarians, we represent the Ghanaian people. The Ghanaian people unanimously in Parliament, through their representatives, passed a law. The president only holds power and trust for us. His own whole responsibility is to sign it into law. If he fails to do that, the constitution has given us the power to bring it back to Parliament and to thirds of members of Parliament who pass it into law without the president. Honorable, I do appreciate very much, and thank you so much. You're welcome, James. Honorable Sam George is a member of the Opposition National Democratic Congress, the NDC party in Parliament, and the leader and the lead sponsor of the Ghana LGBTQ bill. He was speaking with us from the Ghanaian capital, Accra. The Nigeria Labour Congress has suspended the second day of its two-day nationwide protest called for Tuesday and Wednesday. The protest was intended to force the government to act on the high cost of living, general insecurity, and the devaluation of the Naira. Benson Upa is the head of information and public affairs at the Nigeria Labour Congress. He tells me the first day of the protest was an overwhelming success and that the ultimatum for the government to implement certain demands remains in place. We decided that today, instead of doing a road show, we were going to do a show within the confines of our facilities across the country. So we held press conferences on the same issues across the 36 states and FCT, that's the Federal Capital Territory there in Abuja, to, one, make our observations known about our experience in the course of our roadshow yesterday, the behavior of the agents of the state, and our expectations from the government. So you said that you have achieved overwhelming success. Uh, what did you achieve uh, from Tuesday's strike? First, we came out in our numbers, in spite of the opposition from the government, from the security agencies, say we should not do it. We told them our right to hold these rallies remains enshrined in our constitution, national constitution. Second, we were able to express our feelings, state our demands to the appropriate authorities, and we got reassurances that these demands were genuine and will be expeditiously met henceforth. President uh, Bola Tinubu has taken some action, at least to meet your, some of your demands. Are you pleased with what the president has done so far? Well, in my place, they say a half loaf of bread is better than none. But how we wish he should do more, because he has the capacity to do more within the space given to him. I forgot to mention this to you, that we have given another time frame within which we expect him to act positively. At the end of that timeline that we have given, we would reconvene and take a decision on the next line of action. 
this time, I do not want to preempt anything, though it's not likely to be a protest. There are some, I think, some in the uh, parliament who are suggesting the president should hand, I think, cash to citizens. Did you hear that? Uh, would that be okay? Yeah, those are handouts. I mean, what the Americans call the dole, that could help, but that is only for a limited time. We would want decisions that stimulate production, that are capable of bringing down the current inflationary spiral, and to also moderate this insane exchange rate. It is unpardonable. No reasonable government acting reasonably leaves its national currency to the storms of the market. The market is ruthless. The market is guided by unseen hands to the advantage of those who run the market. And I want to tell you, as one of the, as a member of the Global South, we are not privileged to be in that club. Let me put it right. I think the correct Instead of cash, what I meant to say was that is some in Parliament has asked the federal government to introduce uh, food stamps, a program of food stamps to help uh, cushion the effect of hunger and food crisis in Nigeria. Thank you very much, yeah, Mr. Botti. But you see, food stamps are not new. I'm sure the more advanced countries have used food stamps in time past. Using them here in, in the country if properly implemented, will go a long way in moderating the hunger in the land for a limited time. It's the reason why we said there should be a multi-pronged approach, immediate, medium, and long-term. That way, if they're properly coordinated, we're going to have synergy and we'll move in a dead speed to recovery. Benson Upa is the head of information and public affairs at the Nigeria Labor Congress. He was speaking with us from Abuja. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Botting, Washington. Today is Thursday, February 29th. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. An appeals court in Guinea on Wednesday released journalist Seku Pandesa, the Secretary General of the Private Press Association of Guinea. He was sentenced last week and fined $50 for protesting economic hardships and ineffective government policies. Meanwhile, labor union protests demanding Pandesa's release were suspended late Wednesday. Dauda Mohamed Kamara is editor-in-chief at Espas FM. He tells me that Pendesa told his colleagues following his release to keep the pressure on the military junta until there is freedom of the press. Exactly. Seku Jamal Pendesa has been released this uh, Wednesday uh, afternoon. Previously, as you know, previously sentenced for to six months of uh, imprisonment with uh, three months suspended by the courts of first instance of 16. Seku Jamal Pendesa was uh, sentenced to the time served in the prison, one month and ten days. The court of uh, call released uh, Seku Jamal Pendesa today. Have you been able to speak to 
Mr. Pandesa following his release, or did he make any statement? Yes, of course, a short statement. As uh, soon as uh, he was released by the appeal courts, he just called his uh, colleagues and cameras to uh, stay on a struggle until the internet and the media has been freed because the negotiation is going to take place now because what was asked by his colleagues is, uh, you know, the unconditional release of Pendesa was the uh, prerequisite for, the, for their participation in any dialogue and since this has been achieved I believe that the discussion will now focus on other points such as the reduction of the price of consumer goods, uh, respect for the memorandum of uh, understanding signed in 2002 and 2003 among others. The protesters have been demanding uh, the release of Mr. Pandesa. So uh, do you think now the protest will go away now that he has been released? Yes, as soon as uh, Seku Jamal Pandesa is released and the movements are called to suspend the strike because that was the demand and the demand has been satisfied now, they are called to suspend all activities and see when the government is going to call them to get up in dialogue to see about the other points of verifications. And now what they are saying, everything is suspended now, the strike is suspended and they are listening now to the government because, as you know, the new Prime Minister was nominated yesterday. What about the restrictions on the internet in Guinea? Have those restrictions been lifted? As for the internet, the medias, we are still on the same situation. There is no amelioration yet. The medias are also always blocked in, in Canal Plus and Star Times. Also, the sign of radios, uh, let's say Espas, Evasion, Joma, other amongst. Dawuda Mohamed Kamara is the editor-in-chief at Espas FM. He was speaking with us from the Guinean capital, Conakry. Chad's Electoral Commission made a surprise announcement on Tuesday that presidential elections to end three years of military rule in the Central African state will take place on May 6, several months earlier than planned. Moki Edwin Kinzika reports from neighboring Cameroon. Chad's National Elections Management Body says presidential elections will be held May 6. It said the elections will mark a return to constitutional order and the end of General Muhammad Idris Deby's transitional period now in his third year. The 37-year-old became leader of Chad's Transitional Military Council in April 2021 after his father Idris Deby Ignu died while fighting northern rebels. The rebels said they wanted to end the older Debbie's 31-year rule. The younger Debbie took over from his father and promised to head an 18-month transitional council, but in October of 2022, he dissolved the council and declared himself interim president. It is not yet known how many candidates will run in the May 6 polls, but last month, Chad's former ruling Patriotic Salvation Movement, or MPS party, said that Mohamed Idris Deby will be the party's nominee. A group of Chadian opposition leaders met Monday, a day before the election's date was disclosed, to select a candidate. They too declared to support President Deby. 
Takinlai Ndolasem, the president of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Chad, took part in Monday's meeting and spoke to VOA from Jamena in a telephone interview. Ndolasem says 127 opposition leaders who attended Monday's meeting in Jamena decided to convene another meeting Friday because many other opposition leaders have indicated that they want to join the coalition that supports Debi as a presidential candidate. He says Debi has maintained the peace in Chad by disarming rebel groups and providing basic needs, including water, education, food, and sources of livelihoods to millions of suffering civilians in a majority of Chad's towns and villages. Not all opposition leaders are supporting Debi. Gilbert Ratubaka, the president of the Opposition Artisans for a New Chad, or ARNT, has also declared that he will run in the May 6th elections. Baka said he is surprised that the elections body scheduled the polls for May 6th when Debbie had said earlier they would be in October, shortly before the mandate of the transitional government ends on October 10. Mokish Edwin Kinzuka, VOA News, Cameroon. South Sudanese officials said the country is facing huge economic obstacles which they blame on the war in Sudan. Most of the national revenue comes from crude oil, but it has not been enough to counter soaring commodity prices. As Dennis Logonyi reports from Juba, the government has recently resorted to other revenue streams. Minister of Information and Telecommunications Michael Makwe says the government is unable to execute the 2023-2024 fiscal year budget due to problems with selling the country's oil, which include the fighting in Sudan. The war in the sisterly neighbor, the Sudan, has greatly impacted on the economic situation in South Sudan, which relies mainly on oil production. The oil wells that were waterlogged by heavy floods over the first rainy seasons are still under recovered and the oil sector has not been able to increase production. Now the pipeline taking our crude to Port Sudan has experienced gelling process in numbers one and five stations, making it difficult for the crude oil to reach export market, that is to reach Port Sudan. Even if the crude were to reach Port Sudan, it would still not be possible to ship it for sale due to the threat of blockage of shipping in the Red Sea. Makwei acknowledges that the sky Rocketing prices of goods has caused a lot of suffering for South Sudanese, but says the government is working to turn around the economy. Makwei says these moves will enable the government to meet its obligations, including paying the salaries of civil servants who have not been paid in months. The financial crisis causing extreme suffering in the country likely originate from poor fiscal performance due to lack of revenue, diversification, and dependence on oil proceeds. To resolve this fiscal crisis, the government is taking proactive measures to mobilize resources through streamlining collection, consolidating government finances, implementing public finance management reforms, and diversifying the economy. Alich Garang, the governor of the central bank, says the Bank of South Sudan is working to stabilize the market by instituting a restrictive monetary policy. The government has other alternative sources of revenue, and that is the non-oil revenue. Uh, at the moment, I can submit that your government is working day
day and night to increase non-oil revenue. We have to double our effort as the bank to ensure that normally branch can become operational soon. And so as what I can say today is that once with Central Bank branch operates in Numele, it's going to be easy. South Sudan depends on oil for 98% of the government's annual operating budget and 80% of its gross domestic product. Last week, South Sudan crude oil sold for $76.57 a barrel. For VOA News, I'm Dennis Logonye reporting from Juba. Time now for our Black History Month and African History presentation for today, February 29th. On this day in 1940, Hattie McDaniels became the first African-American to be nominated for and win an Academy Award. She won the Best Actress in a Supporting Role for her portrayal of Mami in the movie Gone with the Wind. Also on this day in 1972, Hank Aaron signed a $200,000 contract, becoming the first player in Major League Baseball to get that amount of money. Today, some baseball players make as much as $24 million a year. Year or more. In May 1970, Aaron became the first player in baseball to record 500 homers and 3,000 hits. He is best known, however, for breaking Babe Ruth's record of 714 career home runs which he established in 1935. And on this day in African history, 1988, Archbishop Desmond Umpilo Tutu of South Africa was arrested for demonstrating outside the Houses of Parliament in contravention of South African laws. Those are your Black History Month and African History Facts for today, February 29th. And that's it for this Thursday, February 29th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for being our guest this morning. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Botting, Washington, saying, Have a great day, but please be safe, whatever you do. experts to be truly healthy requires taking care of your physical, mental, spiritual, and social needs. On this week's edition of Our Voices, we will dive into the world of holistic healing. We will also explore some of the most common treatments, including meditation, Reiki, and yoga, and how to promote the well-being in women. Join the conversation.